Well, this morning I want to look at the book of Judges, and you might ask, why are you looking at the book of Judges? For the noble reason is that's where I left off in our church in Sandpoint. <laughs> and I'm simply teaching, as typical of Calvary Chapel style, teaching the next part of the Scripture. And we find ourselves Judges chapter 11, and I want to read the first 11 verses of that chapter. In fact, I think I gave them a slide so you can follow along. I'm reading from the ESV. The passage says this, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. And then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out to him. And after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that's why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah, verse 11, went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mitzpah. Hmm. So Lord, as we contemplate this word here this morning, I pray, God, that you give me grace to speak it, not just with the correct words, with the right heart. And I pray, God, that you would foster and fashion the hearts of these men and women. I thank you for the tremendous privilege for being able to share in front of them I thank you, God, for Pastor Ken and the ministry you've given to him. I thank you, Lord, for the elders in the church here, um, for, for Dan here and for Foy and for Bob and Skip. And um, I know I'm missing people, but Lord, all of them, I pray that you'd bless them and encourage them as they carry on the fight. I pray, God, that you would encourage us here today. You'd give us your word, heal our hearts. We pray for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Judges, I think, is one of the most fascinating books in all the Bible. It's full of lots of drama, intrigues, wars, assassinations, backbitings, rebellions, victories, failures, God raising up the weak and exalting them in the eyes of man. And essentially what it reads like is a modern-day drama. And you know what a drama is, right? A drama is everyday life with the boring bits taken out. And here he is, it's, this dr it's very dramatic, it's very exciting, but within the book when you begin to read it, you discover some elements that are rather disturbing. And therefore we have to remind ourselves that it's a historical book. In other words, it's accurately recording for us the events that took place in time and in history and in space. It's not necessarily condoning of certain things that are taking place, but it's, as I said, it's a historical book. And being a historical book, it'll show the flaws of the men that are involved in the dynamic. 
warts and all, said Cromwell, right? Warts and all. He shows us the flaws. And we understand soon enough that when we read passages towards the end of the book, let me give you an example, where the Levite is shown upon the scenes. And this Levite isn't a married man, even though he's supposed to be, but he's, he has a concubine. You have a concubine and you're a servant of the Lord? And then it tells us that one day the Benjamites, filled with lust, are banging upon the door and wanting to have their way with him. So as opposed to letting him get touched, he kind of kicks out the front door of this concubine. They have their fun with her all night long. It wasn't too fun for her. And in the morning, she's huddled up at his door. In other words, he didn't even check on her in the middle of the night. And there he kind of kicks her, says, come on, we've got to get going. And he finds that she doesn't even move. He finds out, whoops, she's dead. And now he becomes incensed, a little too late. Now he says, now I'm going to chop her up into 12 pieces. He sends her parts to the 12 tribes of Israel so they can war up against the nation of the Benjamites and get revenge. And you read this and you go, am I taking crazy pills? This is the craziest, weirdest, most perverse behavior I could ever imagine within man. And yet we forget in the book of Judges that it closes. Kind of the overarching theme within the book of Judges is the closing phrase of the book of Judges, and it says this, each man did what was right in his own eyes. Each man did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, if I think it, if I feel it, if I believe it, then it's truth. If I don't like it, I don't want it, it violates something within my sensibilities, it's not truth. And man, always privy to this kind of a, a dynamic, is always in danger of making truth relative to his own self. He doesn't do what Proverbs 3 says, where it says, lean not upon your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge the Lord, and he'll direct your paths. But in the last days, unfortunately, and this is going to happen, men are going to find truth based upon who they are. We hear much today about situational ethics, don't we? Well, normally the Word of God says this, but in this situation, it's different, and therefore I have to violate the Word of God in order to bring about the greater good. It was Paris Reedhead, the great famous preacher, and most notably for his sermon called Ten Shekels in a Shirt. Paris Reedhead talked about that dynamic, and he says the only way the devil ever gets into a church is when those who are in the church decide to no longer hold the scriptures, the standard of their conduct. And they begin to say, well, this dynamic is different, so we're going to violate what the Word of God says. So the problem in Judges was simply this. Each man does what's right in his own eyes. I think it. And for that, we have to remember that the fundamental message of the Bible is not the, 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 the expression of man. The fundamental message of the Scripture is the greatness of God. So that when it reveals to us these things that seem to present moral problems to us, and indeed they're moral problems, we have to remember it's a historical book, and the dynamic of determining whether or not something is right or wrong isn't whether or not it's recorded for us in biblical history. And you know, there's a whole lot of people that begin to think this way. They think, well, the Bible says it, so I can do it. The Bible says a lot of things. And just because it says something doesn't mean it's something you should model. In other words, there's a whole lot of people that, I guess I could, uh, I could call it biblio-idolatry, they're into this, well, it's written in the sacred text, and therefore it's condoned in and of God. Not the case. Just because the Scripture records something, I remember when I first moved to Sandpoint, it's a very, very interesting city. Sandpoint, uh, the further north you go in Idaho, it gets more and more north Idaho. You think, you know, Coeur d'Alene's north Idaho, but then you go north of north Idaho, and it gets more and more north Idaho. <laughs> if you didn't know this, God, some of the best people I know live in north Idaho, but nonetheless, if you didn't know this, actually the toothbrush was invented there. Did you know that? 
The toothbrush was invented in North Idaho because if they invented it anywhere else, they would have called it a teeth brush. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> but this gentleman approaches me and he says, Ben, I've been fighting with my wife and I knew that you would support me. I said, well, why? He goes, I've proved to her from the scripture that we should have a polygamous marriage. Now, I don't know what polygamy means in the Greek, but I think it means miserable man. Why in the world? I'm not saying one woman makes you miserable. I'm saying multiple wives would make you miserable. And every time you see polygamy practiced in the Bible, there's contention and strife and chaos in the home. So as the standard, he, this guy tells me, he goes, well, I knew you would support me biblically because my wife seems to have a problem with me desiring to introduce this other woman into our marriage. And I told him, I said, I think you might win the argument with her. You're going to lose the war. And I began to explain to him the dynamics of what the scripture and how to interpret it, and he rejected it. Of course, would you be surprised that his marriage soon failed? The fact is, the basis of determining whether or not it's something in the scripture that we should follow is whether, not whether or not men are doing it, not whether or not Judah goes into a prostitute, and therefore, huh, some guys would say, I can do this. I said, well, you can, but you're going to take some friends home with you. <laughs> not the kind you want. Why would you, want, why would you want to engage in the destructive behaviors that the scripture historically records? The basis of determining truth is not whether or not man does it, it's whether or not it's consistent with the nature and the character of God. And the nature and the character of God is revealed to us not in a set of Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments are the Ten Commandments because it reveals the character of God. How many people have read the Ten Commandments as a bunch of do's and don'ts? Now, they are do's and don'ts. That's a greater discussion that I would love to have. But if you begin to read the Ten Commandments as what they are, Jesus said, these are the scriptures that testify of me, speaking of himself. The law of God is the law of God, not because it's a good set of rules for society to keep in order to maintain a certain structure. If that's all it was, Hammurabi had it before us. The fact is, the Ten Commandments are the Ten Commandments because they reveal the nature and the character of God. And man was made in the image and the likeness of God, and therefore thou shalt not steal. Why? Because God is not a thief. And you were made in his image and in his likeness. Therefore thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not lie. Lie. Why? Because God is not a liar. And you were made in his image and his likeness. Therefore thou shalt not lie. I can guarantee you, if you here this morning would take the time to go through the Ten Commandments and read them differently, read them to find out what God is like. Stop thinking that by knowing them or memorizing them that you can somehow become the very thing that you know or memorize. It all starts with an understanding of who he is. So when I look at the scripture itself, I begin to determine not because it's written in the scripture, it's something that's good, it's just something that took place and it's a historical book. So it records history, it presents us with questions and great opportunities for us to answer those questions of culture, but it also presents us with tremendous characters. And I love the characters in the book of Judges. I don't know if you do, I do. I, I absolutely love them. And I think about Gideon. Remember Gideon? Gideon was this little tiny scrawny guy I see in my mind. The Lord comes to him one day while he's threshing wheat inside of a cave. You've heard Pastor Ken say many times when you thresh wheat, you'd go on the top of the hill because you would take the wheat and the chaff, you'd throw it in the air, the wind would blow along and the heavy grain would fall to the ground and the chaff would be gone. But could you imagine trying to thresh wheat in a cave where there was no wind? You would have to put your pit fork in, throw it in there, and <laughs> throw it. <laughs> this would be exhausting. And yet there he is, so terrified of what's going to take place. And the Lord comes to him, 
And he says, Gideon, go in the strength that you have. And Gideon basically says this, what do you mean the strength that I have? I'm the weakest of my father's clan. And if that's not bad enough, I'm the, my father's clan is the weakest of all the clans in Israel. And you're coming to the weakest of the weakest of the weakest to tell him to go out and to give victory to the nation of Israel? He says, go in the strength that you have. I have no strength. God says, that's exactly what I'm looking for. The man that recognizes in and of himself that he can do no good thing. And it was Gideon that went out in obedience to the Lord. And 30,000 men suddenly rally around him. And God looks at him and says, hey, that's too many people. And so what does he do? He sends down two-thirds of them. Now there's 10,000 people. He says, that's still too many people. So what I want you to do, Gideon, is to have them go drink from the water. Now this is the way that passage is usually interpreted. Gideon had 10,000 men, but God had to whittle it down to the strongest and the best. And he was looking for SEAL Team 6. So the men that bent down and would not take their eye off the enemy scooped the water and kept their eye forever on the enemy. By the way, I've been to Ein Harad. You can't see the enemy from there. You can see the mountain way far away, but you can't see the enemy. It goes against the whole flow of the, of the story to say, listen, we're going to get the strongest and the best and whittle them down, and they are going to have victory. You know what I think is going on? God comes and says, listen, Gideon, have the guys drink water. And all the young pups said, Phew, sweet, and they jumped down. All the old guys were going. <laughs> oh, God. Sweet, help. (laughs) If he took the young guys into the battle when they surrounded the Midianites with their clay jars and their torches, they would have run into the battle. When they saw them running and fleeing and fighting amongst themselves, they'd say, yeah, let's jump in. The old guys would stand on the outside and go, glad they're doing the work. (laughs) And he takes a bunch of crack pots like us. Crack the pot, the light shines out. I love the characters of the book of Judges. I think about Samson. I was reading the Beginner's Bible to my four and six-year-old the other night. Great book to read to your kids. Creates tremendous questions. I remember a time where I actually wrote an entire Bible study by reading the Beginner's Bible. (laughs) True story. One of my best studies ever. And in the Beginner's Bible, they show this picture of Samson. He was a massive, muscular man. Great giant pecs, you know, he'd hold a quarter between his chest and shoot it out. (laughs) Couldn't lift his arms up because it cut off the veins. He'd pass out. He's a massive man. And I look at Samson, and I have a problem with this. If he was really that muscular, why is Delilah asking him, what's the secret of your strength? If he was massive and muscular, everyone would say, of course he's strong. Look at those muscles. I was just watching this on Drudge Report today, this this cow that had like double muscles and it was all steroided out. And I'm thinking, dang, that's a big cow. Of course he's strong, look at those muscles. But on the other hand, if you saw Urkel go up to the gates of the city and pull off the gates and carry them to a far hill, you would say, what is the secret of your strength? How in the world are you so strong? This doesn't make sense. And I'd suggest to you, Samson wasn't muscular. He was scrawny. This is what drove them nuts. They're going, I can take this guy. And nobody could. And Jephthah's even the same. And even though it tells us in the passage about Jephthah that he was a mighty warrior, it doesn't mean the servants of God have no abilities, but he was a mighty warrior. But it tells us that he's rejected of his father's house. 
They reject him and say, listen, you go somewhere else. We don't want you. And then secondly, it tells us not only is he rejected, but his mother's a prostitute. Here's this guy that feels like, I'm not acceptable. I never win favor. I'm never the guy. And I guess today's language, he would have something that we call an inferiority complex. But here he comes and he says, listen, I'm not it. Even later on in verse 7, when the elders do come to him, he says, did not you, he says to the elders, did you not hate me and drive me away from my father's house? You see, these things these men have all in common is they're not powerful men. They're not in positions of authority. They don't have greatness. Even though they have some skills and abilities, by and large, they are cut off. And God begins to use a man that's broken and, and wounded, that recognizes in and of himself he doesn't have what it takes. You see, there's something else within the story. If you read the last verse of chapter 10, it says this. It says, the Ammonites were coming in to attack the children of Israel. And the leaders of Gilead said to one another, who's the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be our head, our Rosh. Who's the man that will be our head? And let me tell you this. I guarantee you they went to everybody else except for Jephthah because they cast Jephthah out. They probably talked to Ahmed and Benjamin uh, or whoever, you know, all these different, they're asking everybody else and they're finally saying there's nobody that's gifted or called enough, but it can't be that prostitute's son. It can't be the one that we've rejected. It can't be him. And they went through this whole series of examinations and finally they said, we can't find anybody to be our Rosh, our head. And then suddenly they remember, Jephthah was a mighty warrior. Oh gosh, there's nobody else. And so they go knocking on his door, and later on, down in verse 6, they say to him, come, be our leader. Our katsin, if you were to spell it in English, it would be Q-U-A-T-S-I-Y-N. Be our katsin. We don't want you to be our head. We want you to be our leader. We want you to be our hired hand. And what does Jephthah say? He says, why in the world are you asking me now? He's forcing them to a conclusion. Why are you coming to now? I'll tell you why. Because the Ammonites are attacking, and we honestly kind of despised your capacities. So would you be our leader? He basically says, no, I won't be your leader. But if you want me to be your Rosh, your head, because when God does a work, he raises up a man. And there's people that will rally around that man. And even these Gileadites, they didn't like him, but they recognized God is with the guy. And therefore, in this internal struggle, they go to him. They say, will you be our leader? He says, no, I won't be your leader, but I'll be your Rosh. And they said, okay, fine, you can be our Rosh. And then they said, in the last verse of the passage, it says, okay, then let's go in front of the people and verify this. It's not gonna be a secret thing. Yes, we swear, we're gonna go in front of the people and then they're gonna declare, this is our head. And I imagine that was very difficult for these men. But it was the procurement of Jephthah, this sense of rejection and being cast off was so inside of him. Now when you read Jephthah about him, and usually people talk about this weird dynamic that took place, and in fact I'm gonna discuss that next week, not here, but nonetheless, that took place with his daughter, but I think Jephthah's kind of painted in a bad light. Look what it says in verse three. It says, now Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and as the ESV and the King James say, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out to him. You think in our minds that this is what happened. 
Jephthah went out into the wilderness and all the gnarly, evil kind of people said, hey, let's go around Jephthah. They're shooting up crack and snorting things and robbing banks and yeah, we're the worthless fellows. But that's not what it says. In fact, Adam Clark says the word may mean poor persons, without property, without employment. John Gill later on says not wicked men, but empty men whose pockets were empty. And then he said, then he goes on to say, they had nothing to live upon, no more than Jephthah. And I think it's very funny, sometimes when you've been in the ministry, you have nothing to live upon. And yet the people that will come around you will think that you're living luxuriously. It's like, dang, I'm praying for my bread and water every night just like you. And they rallied around him. They said, I got nothing to live on. You got nothing to live upon. And you see, the same idea was given to us about David, wasn't it? In 1 Samuel chapter 22, it says that David goes to the cave of Adullam, and when his brothers of his father's household heard that he went down there, verse 2 says, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and became the, he became the commander of them, about 400 men, and David went from there to Mitzpah of Moab. It's the same Mitzpah that Jephthah's at. Was David a gnarly fellow that was living in sin and everybody rallied around him that was evil and gross and thus the Spirit of God came upon him? Or was it what John Clark, Adam Clark and John Gill said, that it wasn't that they were worthless men, they were men that were worth less? They didn't have much. They were kind of broke. There was something about the rejection that Jephthah went through that they've been through, and they rallied around him. They said, that guy's like us. He draws a crowd of people that are, that are not just these gnarly people. That's why the NIV takes the liberty to go on to say he gathered around him adventurous fellows. That's not what the translation says, but that does grasp the spirit of it better. He grasped around him these adventurous guys, but it's not so much they're adventurous. It's like, man, we've got nothing to lose. And the question that comes to my mind is why does God use such lowly men? You know what the answer is? Because he says, no man will touch my glory. And when you've been broken, you understand who you are, and you don't even want to touch the glory. You see, when God says, no man's going to touch my glory and yet live, it's not because God is jealous to give credit where credit's due, and it's not because he's so insecure that somebody else would look good and I would look bad. I'm not going to share my glory with anybody. It's because you and I have this thing called a sin nature. And inside this sin nature, if we touch the glory of God, it would be like a petri dish to that sin nature. It would flourish and grow, and we would become utterly sinful. In fact, in Romans in chapter 8, Paul tells us that God allowed a certain frustration to come into the creation in order to make us yearn for his glory and the revelation of the sons of God. But his goal, nonetheless, isn't to keep you from the glory. In your condition, you can't touch the glory. His goal was ultimately, as he says in Hebrews 2.10, that he would bring many sons unto glory. And God is wise, and he's patient, and he's long-suffering, and at times he uses methods we don't understand. But he is determined that men will touch his glory, but you can't do it now because of your sin. You see, I've found over the years, and I think probably some of you have found this as well, that God doesn't use the people that keep him in business. You can generate a whole lot of excitement with human energy, but he uses people that recognize, I don't keep you in business, God. God, you keep me in business. And your opinions on that will reveal a tremendous amount about yourself. I think about Paul the Apostle in Philippians 3. 
Paul the Apostle recounts the greatness that he was. He says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, which to us means bad, but to them it meant good. I was a Hebrew of Hebrew. I was the cat's meow. In terms of the law, I was flawless. Everything about my life was perfect, but I counted it all rubbish. And Paul the Apostle could count up all the great things that he had done. And he, in his mind, was the perfect person to be used to reach the Jews. Look at my credentials. Look at my history. And yet, what do we find about Paul? He becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. He isn't going to the place that he is most qualified for. In fact, God raises up Peter to become the apostle to the Jews, it seems. And Paul becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. It's like, God, what are you doing? He is most gifted and qualified over there. And so Paul the apostle decides one day he's going to go to Damascus. And he's going to win his Jewish brethren to the Lord. And it went marvelously. He failed marvelously. He went out strong and he came back weak. And they let him over the wall by a rope at night where he had to escape with his life. And most theologians, when reading the book of Galatians, discovered that he was gone somewhere between five and 15 years. Right around 10 years, he's gone out of the place. And they began to ask at the beginning of his departure, whatever happened to the great Paul? But by the end of that time, they're thinking, you know, out of sight, out of mind. I don't even know where Paul is. Who's Paul? Hmm. Paul would go on to say in 1 Corinthians 1 that he uses the weak things of this world to confound the wise. Are you okay with that kind of weakness? Are you okay with not being great and mighty? And God's methods with man are so opposite of our methods. He wants man to touch the glory, but not in the way that man wants to touch the glory. Before a man of God can be used greatly, he has to be hurt and broken deeply. And you see, the weak, nonetheless, are made strong. Remember Samson? Samson one day was holding the jawbone of an ass, which would be quite a vicious weapon. And he's swinging it back and forth, and he says, heaps upon heaps with the jawbone of an ass, I've killed a thousand men. And I stop and think, I think, why in the world are a thousand people not turning away and saying, don't touch that guy. I'll tell you why. Because it was Urkel. He was out there going, yeah, I can take you out. And they're saying, why can't anybody take this geek out? I can wipe him out. He's a nerd. He's a geek. And each one, heaps upon heaps. Because he deceives the methods of the devil. The devil's kingdom is promoted by power and threat and authority. But Jesus, when he died upon the cross, deceived the wisdom of the devils. If you don't follow me, think of the the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Think about the white witch. There she is in her anger and rage. She's going to kill Aslan, a picture of Christ. And Aslan deceives her wisdom with God's secret wisdom. He lays his life down and lets her exercise her authority so that he, in humility, can conquer the powers of this earth. And that's why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, I believe it is, right at the end of the verse, he says, if the gods of this world knew that by crucifying the Lord of glory, they would have defeated themselves, they never would have crucified him. He deceived the devils through humility. He deceived, Samson deceived the Philistines by being Urkel. Come on, guys. He deceived the Midianites by raising up Gideon and only having 300 men. 
And this becomes the characteristics of the servants of God. They're just men. Now, there's two things I would want to say about that. I've heard many people say, well, they're just men. But then they begin to treat the servants of God as though they're held to the standard of being a God. You ever hear this? You're just a man. Well, if I am just a man, shouldn't you be giving me grace of men? But what they tend to do is say, you're just a man, and then they hold you to the standard of being a God. You see, number one, they are just men. But if they're just men, they should be given the grace that is necessary for all men. But the second thing, and I remember this. Some of you guys remember Rhonda Sear. I, I love her. I saw her at some thrift store at a distance a while back. She was here for years at Calvary. And I was just starting the ministry. And Rhonda comes up to me and she says, hey, Ben, what do you think about? And she asked me some theological question. And I answered her correctly. At least I thought I did. <laughs> and she dismissed it. She goes, oh, what do you know? You're just a junior high pastor. <laughs> and I go, gulp. And I paused and I thought about it and I said, I can handle that. I'd rather have the grace than the respect. I don't think I understood how profound that was at the time. You see, when you first start in the ministry or any service to the Lord, people will give you grace. You start off as the junior high pastor, they'll say, oh yeah, you know, you're a junior high pastor, you're an idiot, some of you can testify to that right here. <laughs> but he has grace, but he has no respect. I mean, he's the junior high pastor. But then you begin to labor, and then they begin to see that God's hand is upon you. And then the grace, kind of like when you hit 21, the grace goes away. That's why high schoolers are so confident, because They've received nothing but grace. <laughs> and then they translate to this stage in life called, now you get to earn your respect. And that's why teaching college and career ministries are sometimes the hardest groups on earth to teach, because you can't go to their mom and dad and put them in their place. <laughs> and now they come to a point where they begin to succeed, and now they have the respect, but they have no grace. If you screw up, boom. You make a left turn, boom. And what I've seen is that when men have stood their ground and done everything to stand, they've stand, they stood their ground, then they earn what we call the grace and the respect. And that's what I see as biblical eldership. They are to be given the grace, but they are to be given respect for what they've done, how they've faithfully served, how they've continued year in and year out. This is, this is what I see. And so here he comes, and I remember years ago, my, my dad was, he probably told the story of this before. Remember the old Nora building? Some of you do, and when we were there at Nora, they had a one bathroom stall downstairs, and it was the, the urinals that were facing each other so that you had to almost, you know, basically look at the guy in the eye when you're at the urinal, and you think it was awkward. And if I'm getting the story correct, what I remember it as being is the gentleman looks at my dad and says, huh, you are just like one of us. <laughs> But here's the problem. In our culture, we have this phrase called familiarity breeds contempt. You ever heard that? Familiarity breeds contempt. And it is true that he's just a man. But let me ask you the question. Where's the honor? Now, I'm not saying people in this church are not honoring. I'm just talking about a principle. I know you guys honor him very much. 
And that's what Paul said in Romans 13. He said, give, give respect to whom respect is due. Give honor to whom honor is due. Who are they due to? Those people who have stood the ground and fought the fight and continued. And so I asked myself, why in the world did God use Jephthah? This guy that is rejected of his brethren is the last resort. We try to pick everybody else except for you, and I guess like, I guess we gotta choose you. Why did he use it? I think of three things. Number one, he had the pain of shame. My mother was a prostitute. Number two, he had this pain of rejection. My brothers cast me out. In other words, a major theme in his life was pain. And God begins to use those pains that temper the sinfulness within us men to build the man into a man that no longer leans upon himself but depends exclusively upon the Lord. But I think the third most important thing about Jephthah, I see God using him, is that he wasn't bitter. Anyone ever been bitter before? That's all of us. All of us have been hurt. All of us have been wounded. All of us have hurt other people. But Jephthah didn't become bitter. You say, Ben, how do you know? It's only a little suggestion within the text. It says when he was cast out, it said he went to the land of Tob. You know what Tob means in Hebrew? Good. When Jephthah was rejected of his brethren, he went to the good land. He went to the place where he wasn't going to become bitter. And these worthless fellows who weren't worthless, smoking crack and robbing banks, but they were worthless, these worthless men followed him and they find themselves strengthened in his attitude and his spirit. Something about him didn't become bitter even though he was so sinned against. We identify with this. We have not had a good go at life. Our lot in life has been bad. It's been difficult. We've been cast off. We've been rejected. And I'm bitter about it, but I go and see Jephthah. He's in the good land. And something about him is not bitter. And you say, Ben, how do you know he's not bitter? Because the Spirit of God came upon him. And he doesn't come upon bitterness. And he becomes a rallying point to strengthen these men that this is a good man. I think of Hebrews in chapter 12. You know what it says? Consider Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Consider him, lest you grow weary and lose heart. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, lest we grow weary. Oh, I remember Jesus went through the same thing. And he didn't become bitter. He wasn't on the cross saying, curse them, Father, curse them. <laughs> He's saying, Father, forgive them. And you're never gonna be able to have that kind of forgiveness for another person or a lack of bitterness by focusing upon your situation. You have to consider Jesus. You have to rally around those like Jephthah and say, man, this guy has been slandered and lied about and accused of everything on earth, but he's not becoming bitter. And it's only good men that aren't good inherently, but are good because they've learned the discipline that in the midst of trial, I follow Christ. It is a discipline, and I say that in terms of good men, not being, there's certain men that are inherently good and certain men that are inherently bad, that's not true, we're all bad. But there are good men who have followed the example of the good master, and they are the ones that learn through discipline how not to become bitter. You see, I don't know how Jephthah did it. I don't know how Jephthah didn't become bitter about his trial, but I do know how I try to do it. 
and it's a discipline. Are you going through through it? (laughs) It's a discipline. You're going to feel like taking a baseball bat. You're going to feel like getting online and writing things. You're going to feel like all sorts of things. But you say, God, I'm going to have these disciplines. And would you allow me to share those four things that I personally remember? I don't know if Jephthah did this, but I know I do this. And I know he didn't become bitter, so it had to be something like this. There's four things that I think we could learn from. Number one, when someone is coming against you and saying, you are this in Christ, and this is who you are, and you're this piece of trash, and you're that, and you're this, and saying all sorts of evil about you. I remember Ephesians chapter one. I remember who God says, I am in Christ. You're saying I'm this, and that, and this, and that, and maybe it's true, maybe it's not true, but that is not the way God sees me. And I rally myself around Ephesians one, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He chose us in him to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through. And I rally myself around who he is and who I am in him. And he says, I'm blessed, I'm chosen, I'm holy and blameless. He loves me, he adopted me to be his son. In other words, he shared his name with me. And he redeemed me, he forgave me. And when those voices come and those railing accusations come, and they may be true, they may be false, it doesn't matter because this is who I am in Christ. And I take it by faith. My ears are hearing, my heart is failing, believing those things, but I discipline myself. I said, that is not who I am. This is who I am. I am redeemed, I am forgiven, I'm holy and blameless in his sight, and I come before him by faith. This is who I am in Christ. And if you have this discipline, it'll be the first thing. The second thing that I see is necessary is to remember the sovereignty of God. That he has providence, he has power. It's not like Satan is an equal power. It's not Zoroastrianism where it's this tug of war between God and Satan. God is all powerful. I love the song by Aaron Keyes. It talks about sovereign over us. And in that song he says, even what the enemy meant for evil, he will turn out for our good and for his glory. It's what Joseph said, you meant it for evil. You wanted to do me harm. You wanted to punch me in the face. But God used this for the good. You know, I'll I'll confess this. Dan would testify of this as well. There was times when the board of elders here made decisions that I thought were stupid. <laughs> I'm saying, God, it's not the right decision. God has a way of teaching you that it was the right decision. And he began to show me that Ben, I allowed them to hire that person. I allowed them to make that financial decision because they weren't issues regarding the eternal weight of glory. So I actually had them make those decisions to deal with something that's much greater than do we spend our money on A or B? Do we hire this person or that person? I allowed them to make that decision to deal with a great, much greater thing inside of you, which is rebellion. Remember the big mouth frog? 
Is that the? <laughs> oh. Okay. God, you were sovereign, weren't you? You were actually leading, weren't you? You actually providentially made these men make decisions that I was convinced were wrong, didn't you? And suddenly you recognize the sovereignty of God and you go, God, there's nothing that happened that you were not in control of. And does that not then, therefore then, for us thinking people, and that's all of you, doesn't it then create a whole other set of problems? Because God, if you're sovereign, why does evil happen upon the earth, right? If you're all the way in control, why do bad things happen to good people? To which I say there are no such things as good people, but nonetheless. <laughs> Wasn't this the question of Rabbi Kushner in his book entitled that? And he came to the conclusion that either God is all sovereign and not loving, because how could he let these things happen if he was loving, or he's all loving and just not sovereign? But Rabbi Kushner missed a very important dynamic of God's character. It is true he's sovereign. It is true he's loving, but guess what? He's also all wise. And I've not spent a few moments saying, God, you wouldn't allow your servant to be slandered and lied about and twisted and all that. You wouldn't allow that to happen to promote your kingdom. And he said, yes, I would. It's called the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, is that so? And men, you and I forget the wisdom of God. God, this is who I am in Christ. Number two, you are sovereign. But number three, you're also wise. And the fourth thing I remind myself is the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ Jesus. And when I remember his love, I see the trial through his love, and I realize suddenly that the trials are there to secure the man in time to preserve the man for eternity. What is God more interested in? Your best life now? or your best life then? Doesn't Hebrews tell us to stir up, to live for them, whose city and builder and maker is God, to live for there? Didn't Paul say our citizenship is in heaven? Isn't that the procurement of the man? And so now I begin to see the love of God, and I, by faith, go into eternity, and I say, God, you are going to use this for the good. You do love me. I am in Christ. I'm chosen. And that, my friend, is the thing that keeps you in the land of Tob. It keeps you in the good land. So that when people are saying all sorts of evil, what did Christ say? When slander and accusation come, who am I in Christ? Because there's always people that think they're promoting the kingdom of Christ by tearing people down. Last time I checked my Bible, that was the accuser of the brethren. And he stayed in the land of Tob, and because he guarded his own heart, then the elders came to him, granted last choice, and they said, look, <laughs> there's a battle we're in. It's the Ammonites. They're coming hard, and it looks like you're the guy. And he was ready and prepared to be the man that God had intended him to be. Isn't God strange? So opposite of us. The natural man, you and I inside, are full of bitterness. But by faith, it's a discipline. It's a discipline. You don't go with your feelings, who am I in Christ? He is sovereign, he is wise, and he loves me. It'll save you in time and secure you for all of eternity so that for all of eternity you can be on vacation. 
And that's the day I'm living for. Sound good? Now, last week when I taught this message, at the end of it we prayed and someone started screaming out. I'm not asking that that would happen here this morning. (laughs) But they were very tied up and stuff. And you don't have to scream out. Sometimes that's demonic. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just pain. But as we close in worship, I'm going to challenge you. Up front here, I see that you have communion. I'm going to challenge you that your energy today wouldn't be your own energy. It'd be that bread, which is emblematic of what? Christ, the body of Christ. God, you're my energy today. The the blood, the, the, the grape juice, what is that emblematic of? The covenant of his blood. I'm in Christ. I'm covered. And as we're closing in worship, let me encourage you to to be in prayer. I think they want me down here up front to talk or pray with some of you guys. But let there that interaction. And go out clean today. Don't be jammed up. It doesn't help. It hurts. It feels good for the moment, but man, it's a bitter pill later on. But come to the table. Fellowship with him in his suffering. Let him cleanse you. Let him be your energy in your life. Feed upon him. So, Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you, God, that you could give us this grace to hear today. I thank you, Lord, that you can speak through the weakness of this human flesh. And I thank you that you've given these people ears to hear. I pray, God, that as we close in worship, you would soften and heal their hearts. And that was our prayer here this morning, that you would bring healing to the hearts of these men and women. And so, God, continue your work. Heal our hearts. Forgive us of our sin. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.